SaaS Insiders, welcome to this episode of our show. Today with me, I have Yukon Palmer, which you might know as the most consistent SaaS entrepreneur, the most consistent entrepreneur, because he's been building his recent company for 20 years. That, that's quite an experience. That tells you that consistency and improvement over time matters. But I'll, I'll give him the, the stage to introduce himself. But that's it. Yukon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you give SaaS Insiders maybe one or two minute background of who you are, what you do, what people know you for? Sure. Yeah. So I'm the founder of FieldLogics. Uh, we provide an uh, IoT uh, product uh, to companies to help them monitor their field employees. Uh, we call our product or our platform field resource management because we help them monitor their field vehicles, employees, and equipment to ensure that they're efficient and safe basically just to help these companies ensure that they're productive. And we've built some, some tools for IoT in my company, but for those SaaS insiders who are not really clear on that, what is IoT? Yeah, so IoT is really leveraging hardware um, with software. So um, there's a software component that communicates with remote hardware, uh, and that communication channel could be cellular, um, it could be Wi-Fi, a uh, number of wireless technologies, and it's basically com communicating with a piece of hardware somewhere that's remote. Sometimes you can monitor it, sometimes you can control it, but yeah, IoT encompasses software and hardware. Does your comp company provide just a software solution to existing IoT devices, or do you also provide hardware as well? So we also provide hardware. Um, okay. Our core competency is really on the software side, so we built and manage the software, and we tend to work with third-party hardware. So all of the uh, devices, that are, or devices that are deployed are typically manufactured by someone else, and we're mm -hmm. just connecting to those and communicating okay. with them. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So you're not producing the devices. You're basically buying them, but for your clients, you provide the, the whole package with hardware as well. Absolutely. Okay, okay, clear on that. One thing that we're all curious about is, especially for Virgin SaaS founders who are just starting out, it's their first year, maybe second year, they want to grow. But when you look at the experience of someone who has been able to run a company for 20 years in a row, right, especially without some, without some external funding, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you haven't involved any VCs, any like private equity like during this time, right? That's correct, right. So it's entirely self-funded. What do you think it takes to, to really lead a company, to manage it in such a way so it can go through the Great Recession, through many, many ups and downs, and, and like still sustain? Because... Like, what do you think are the main components for that in the founder? Yeah, so, you know, one is um, flexibility um, on the financial side. So trying to avoid a lot of fixed costs, um, you know, trying to keep your costs variable um, because, you know, when things get tight, uh, you will inevitably have to cut some costs. Um, and it's a lot easier to cut those variable costs than the fixed costs. So that's one thing, you know, definitely staying lean, as lean as possible. Uh, the great thing about SaaS is there's typically a recurring revenue component. Um, so you definitely, um, that helps. Uh, but also keep in mind, um, you know, a lot of small businesses tend to suffer the most when these recessions hit. So if your customer base is heavily concentrated on the SMB side, it might be pretty tough because you'll experience a lot of churn with the smaller businesses. Uh, whereas midsize and larger companies, um, often tends to be more stable and sometimes they even grow during recession. So if you can get a larger component of your customer base in the mid to large 
uh, size uh, businesses, then that would actually help you quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. One thing that is on top of my mind, and probably other SaaS insiders as well right now, is sometimes people use the term that the company, SaaS, for example, they grow too fast. And what usually referred to is they trying to acquire too many customers, more than they can handle. And as a result, it starts breaking things with the model. You've been you've been consistently growing for the past 20 years. From your experience, is there such a thing as growing too fast, maybe growing too slow? And how do you find like the balance? Because, because, because your story is inspiring to me personally, because it says like consistency over time yields results, right? Just like Warren Buffett in investing, for example, he doesn't go 100% a year, but he does 5% here, 5% here. He just does it consistently and, and really makes me, makes me respect what you do. And I wanted to know your opinion in terms of growth. How do you sustain that? Yeah. So, you know, when you're growing, you know, a lot comes down to, to the infrastructure that you have in place, right? So the backend systems, the billing systems, the customer support processes, when you start up, when you start up and you don't have those things established and you start to grow extremely rapidly, things tend to fall apart, right? You'll have a lot of customer support issues and, um, you know, you may have significant churn with your existing customer base because they're not happy with the experience with your company. Um, you know, one thing we've done over the past 20 years is we've been incrementally improving all of those processes um, to ensure that our customers uh, continuously have a, a great experience with us. So I, I would say, and you know, we've worked with companies, we've worked with partners where they were startups and they and you could tell they didn't have the infrastructure in place. And um, sometimes those companies were extremely difficult to deal with. So I would say that's the thing is to to look at the, you know, the operations, the back end of your organization, make sure it's it's solid. And then as you scale, what you have in place may inevitably break. However, if you have a foundation, you can build on the foundation. If you don't have the foundation, things will fall apart pretty quickly. So, so basically, if we could sum it up, it's having the systems in place in a way so that when, when you scale, they take care of the scalability. So it's not like necessarily you doing all the ropes. It's more like the system that, that makes it process, like very structured way. Do I get this correct? Exactly right. So having you know established processes internally, having people that are assigned to certain tasks, um, you know, all those things really help because when when specific cases come in or things come up, you know, you have an established process to handle it, and people know what they're doing. It's not like you're grabbing somebody from marketing and that person's trying to handle your customer support. You know, the way we handle it is we have people that are dedicated to a specific task. And they can repeatedly do the same task and ensure that it's done the proper way. Okay. I'm always telling SaaS insiders about systems and how, how to build them, but like, yeah, what you're boring. It's it's SaaS, it should be fun. But like from your experience, I, I see that I'm not the only one who's, who's preaching about systems and making it work. You can yeah. one thing that's that's also curious to know from your experience, especially, is since you've been on the market for quite some time, you probably see some companies, maybe even in the same industry as you appear on the market, maybe even compete at some level and then like disappear. Like you, you probably had a lot of those things where you see them happening and then in two years and five years, they, they don't exist. What do you think you did differently than them that, that made you sustain this this, this this journey with FieldLogics? You know, I would say a lot of them have kind of sold their companies too quickly. So they may get some traction and then suddenly acquirers come around and, and buy them 
quickly and these people exit. I've seen that several times over in this industry. I think that's maybe one of the biggest differences between the way I've approached things and the way they approach things. You know, I have definitely had those opportunities in the past, but I always um, help decided to pass on them because I, I see a, a bigger potential for us. And also I, you know, I'm, I like to control the way, you know, our product is built and the customer experience and everything. And when those uh, opportunities came along, I felt like I would lose control and the company would be totally different than, than it, than it was. I would say that's the biggest difference is difference is just people will grow to a certain point. Suddenly they get this acquisition offer, they exit right away. And, um, you know, they're here to get here today and gone tomorrow. I have to assume that from when you see this picture in, in the view of 20 years, you see how the market also changes for SaaS, for IoT, in terms of dynamics, right? How many companies are rising, how quickly they are going, how does VC operate in this sector, right? Especially like when the boom, like the tech boom happened like a year, a couple of years ago. What do you think has, are there any fundamental changes that happened to market in the past couple of years in terms of SaaS, IoT? and how investors look at things. Yeah, I mean, I would say SaaS in general has changed quite a bit. You know, when we started, there weren't very many SaaS companies. I think Salesforce was really the only real SaaS company at the time. And then, you know, at the time you had to build almost everything from scratch. So you had to buy your servers, put them in a colo or in your closet and build all, all of the components from scratch. Whereas now, um, you know, you have AWS, you have all these cloud um, solutions you you can piece together a number of off-the-shelf services and build an IoT or SaaS product pretty quickly. So, so that has changed quite a bit. And also, yeah, I, I'd say there is a lot more investor interest. Another thing, when I started, subscription models weren't really that prevalent. So uh, having a subscription business, um, you know, back then when I started 20 years ago, you know, you would sell a software license, right? So you'd sell someone a software package, they would load it on their server and you charge them per seat for each user. Uh, there wasn't this real concept of a subscription uh, service per user with the exception of say Salesforce. So because of that, and because the investors see this continuous uh, consistent revenue stream, um, SaaS has definitely become uh, more interesting to them. So there is a lot more activity with SaaS businesses now. Yeah, I'd say it's easier to build these types of solutions. I'd say they're definitely appealing to investors, and that's drawing in a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of uh, a lot of investment activity. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely see how a lot of the services made made SaaS almost popular in a way. Like like I want to be a SaaS founder, right? How do you see that the whole let's say the whole landscape of SaaS and VC right now? Is it is it is it a good time to let's say be more aggressive in terms of getting funded and getting VCs? To, to invest in a company early stage, or it makes sense to make it more bootstrappy way, do the way you started your company back in 2002. Like in your opinion, if you were to start, let's say a SaaS startup today, like, like from scratch, right? Let's say you, you sell your company or you don't have it and you just start from scratch with current tools. Like which, which path do you see as more appealing to you and, and, and why do you think so? Right, so yeah, so keep in mind when I started this company in 2002, that was right after the dot-com crash. So that was during a recession. And, you know, I went out and pitched to a number of investors. And what I discovered was that they were, you know, they were so focused on keeping money, keeping money available to invest in their existing investments to keep those businesses going. So they were not interested in taking on brand new companies, brand new investments. So anytime there's a recession, that's going to be a challenge for a startup. 
if you know if they don't already haven't have not already raised money from a VC, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to to get investment from that VC. I would suggest uh, bootstrapping, you know, proving the business, making sure that you you prove the business model and your your go to market strategy is 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 working. And then you know once the economy starts to recover, going out and approaching those VCs. Uh, the other thing that helps is you'll have more leverage, right? If you can get the business to somewhat of, of a profitable level, you know, you're not going to be as desperate to accept whatever terms the VCs are going to to offer you. Um, you have to keep in mind, even now with this recession, the VCs are most likely going to have all the leverage for the next few years. So if you can do whatever you can to give yourself better um, bargaining power, then that'll help you when you're out uh, trying to raise money. Uh, the other thing too is the product itself should be a product that helps companies or helps people save money. <laughs> if it's a luxury type product, um, it's probably going to be very difficult to sell in the current environment, but also it's going to be difficult to raise money on it. You know, whatever that your product is should help people or organizations, you know, save money or, or, or make things so much better for them that, that you know, they, they could not do without it. So those are the things I would recommend for anybody starting up now. Some golden nuggets, Sass Insiders, I don't want you to drop here from Yukon is your messaging and the whole product should be reflecting what the current market situation is. And since we're going into decline, it's all about securing, protecting what we already have. So people are thinking like, how do we, how do we make sure what we own is like stays with us? No one takes it away, right? So right. even like whenever you even sell it, even if it's the same product. Like if you change the message to more like save this, not not like get more sales, get more stuff, but more like how do we how do we protect what we have? People will just naturally resonate with it a bit more in this time. At least. Do I get this correctly? Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone goes into protective mode. So they want to protect what they have. <laughs> so you have to, your messaging should reflect that. If you were to give an advice for a SaaS founder who's begun who's getting his company. Uh, up and running. So they, they found product market fit, or at least they think about it. That's product market fit is a really uh, is a really blurry line right now when it comes to speaking to founders. But uh, they found product market fit. They can scale. They they go get the funding and they secure the seed round, for example, to 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 go to the next level. What advice would you give a SaaS insider like in this environment? How how to be the most smart uh, with the money, whether yours or whether you're bootstrapping or actually got the, the funding because you've been you've been very efficient with with yours judging by, by your track record but if you were to give like the non-tech founder some advice on this like what that would be in terms of the structure how you spend it marketing people do you have anything like a framework that you use well so I don't know if I necessarily have a framework that I would use I use personally um you know I do try to stay lean so I try to to keep my uh, fixed costs low like I mentioned earlier but also you know what founders have to think about now is is you can't always count on that follow-on investment. So you can't go and raise a seed round and expect your follow-on to come in in 12 months or 18 months. It may be 24 months or 36 months, if that. So what I would suggest is any founder, if they do raise capital, they should look at that capital as their path to their path to profitability. So the next tranche or the next, you know, they want to look at getting that cap, getting themselves to a point where they're profitable and then go out and maybe raise subsequent rounds. But I wouldn't count on basically raising capital, burning through that and, you know, saying, okay, I have to raise money in 12 months because I'll be out of cash. They need it just each milestone. They need to focus on getting the company to profitability 
and then raising the money. But if they can't raise the money, at least they, they're profitable and they can sustain themselves. I heard the term from the VCs is there was a unicorn economy when the, when we're going up, when people are investing, when aggressive, that's where like the billion, the trillion dollar company appear. But when we're starting to decline, unicorns are not as popular as, as they refer to like cockroach companies. The unicorn <laughs> company, the cockroaches, and cockroaches are the ones who survive nuclear bombs, you know, the ones who are super efficient. No, they're not as nice looking. They're not as appealing. They don't have those huge Google-like offices, you know, with with the windows from, from your head to, to, to your feet, you know, super yeah. huge teams of hundreds of people. They like usually have maybe 10 to 20 employees, you know, all remote. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's steadily growing small by small thing. So mm-hmm. I think VCs are, are seeing this going into cockroach economy. So I'm wondering, like, what, what's your take on it? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, I don't quite like the term, <laughs> but we've been called a cockroach before. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, these, you know, the cockroach type companies or these companies that you refer to as that, they'll survive a, a lot of things. I mean, you know, we've we've um, survived. Uh, this would be our third recession, and it really comes down to just being nimble and and learning how to adjust. You know, when your environment changes, then you have to change. Otherwise, you won't be able to survive. Um, you know, sometimes with other types of companies, they just can't make those adjustments and that's why they flame out or they have to get acquired because they don't really have any other option. So that's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely true. You have to ensure that you're nimble and can adjust to your environment. And I guess if that makes a company a cockroach, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah. The term, the term might not be as appealing, but the truth is the meaning of it is the company is not super appealing because it's not fashionable, right? It's not yeah. fancy with how much how much fat it has all over. The yeah, place. it's it's not the shiny it's really new efficient. Thing. It's right. kind of boring in a way. There's it operates like a machine. It's kind of there's nothing cool with it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's profitable. It's doing things, but it's not like it's not like uh, you know newsworthy in a way, right? But mm-hmm. but it survives and it produces value. When you mentioned third recession, it made me realize you probably had a bit of a different feeling about uh, about recession. So when the first one came, let's say for you, it was probably 2008, right? The first one, the big one for you. Well, yeah, I mean, we started in 2002. Well, so yeah. right after, you know, the dot-com bust. Um, so the, then then 2008 and what's the next one? That was the next one. Well, I consider now a recession. I, I think, okay. yeah, I, yeah, I mean, that's just yeah. my personal opinion. So, so I think like when the third one comes for you, it's more like, well, it's just another one of those. It's it's probably a bit a different way you look at this because when sound SaaS founders just begin and they go into this recession, it's like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. Like, yeah, it's yeah. never been like this before. This is it. We're done, right? For mm-hmm. you, it's more like, well, I mean, I guess it's another recession, right? Or can you share a bit more like... Yeah, so, you know, it's not a, it's something I would ever take lightly. <laughs> so, um, you know, because I've experienced it, you know, I, I know... You know, I've learned from prior lessons, right? So, you know, in some cases, I may have taken too long to adjust my cost structure, or you know, I needed to be more aware of maybe my my market, my customer base, and what they're dealing with. Um, so, I'll give you an example. So, prior to 2008, a lot of our customers were small businesses. A lot of them were in the construction trades. So they were typically building new homes, buildings, things like that. Uh, when the recession hit, a lot of those companies struggled, right? So we we experienced a lot of churn. So what we did was we switched our efforts to focus more on service type companies. So these are companies like plumbers, air conditioning contractors. You know, those companies, they do fine no matter what. 
because if your toilet overflows in your house, you're going to call a plumber. You're not going to do without it, right? So those companies tend to be more, um, you know, they, they tend to sustain themselves just fine during these economies. Also, we went up market. So we focused on mid to large size companies because we discovered that they don't struggle as much during down economies. So those two lessons we learned in 2008, we put, you know, we focused our marketing and product development efforts on these, on these types of companies. And that helps us today. So we have a, a large concentration of those types of companies that you haven't done as bad as other types of companies um, in the current environment. So, so that's helped. So these lessons we've learned, you know, we'll go through this, you know, this recession or go through that tough time, learn from it, make an adjustment. And usually those adjustments will pay off the next time it comes around. Got it. It's, it's really interesting. Now you mentioned this. It's almost like you don't know it in advance before it happens, like in the recession. Like just you said, construction companies, like what's what's wrong about this? They're paying us, they're happy customers. Recession comes, they are affected, they're out of business in a way, or they're starting right. to cut costs, right? And it affects you. Do you have like a general recommendation of how we can select like the best target audience? You mentioned like service businesses, which, which is probably more sustainable during those times because people still need services. Or right. maybe you're maybe you're speaking about also the sizes of the companies to go to. Like, what's what's your take on this? If do you have any particular advice in terms of how how do you pick the the right target audience for for these hard times? Yeah. So um, so you definitely want resilient businesses. Um, you know, I, I a lot of our customers have been in business for 40, 50 years. So companies that have been around for a long time are usually ideal. It's kind of challenging. I would avoid a small, like the small businesses. I would try to steer clear of them. The only problem is, is when you're a startup, generally those are the only customers you can win because you need to have a track record before the, the mid-sized businesses and the larger businesses will trust you. But what I would say is if you have to get those small businesses, I would try not to make them such a large percentage of your customer base that if they struggle, then you know, you're losing a ton of revenue. So I would use them as kind of a launching point to try to go up market. If you can get government contracts even, that would help as well because government business is usually pretty um, sustainable as well. I wouldn't generally focus on um, high-flying new businesses or startup type companies because you know there are some companies we've dealt with where they're brand new businesses and they're growing like crazy. And then suddenly they go out of business, right? Or they have problems. I, I, I just I, personally, I like these businesses that are pretty sustainable. They're, 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 they've been around for a long time, and um, you know they've they've gone through a lot of different economic environments, and they, they sustain them. And they're consistent businesses. They're not the flashiest businesses on the front of magazine covers, but they're real businesses that have a real model that are consistent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And I know you're currently in B2B and since you're serving bigger clients, it's also more like high ticket, also more relationship based. So you don't need necessarily like too many clients. You can focus on doing value to your, to your special clients in a way compared to, for example, B2C, right? B business to consumer or like a small micro B2B SaaS. Do you think, do you think like micro, micro SaaS and B2C would be, would be harder to go through this period? Probably, uh, you know, it depends on the market too, though, right? I mean, if 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 you're B two C and and your market has a need and you know that's something they can't live without, that might work. You know, how many startups are actually lucky enough to be in that situation? You know, it's kind of debatable. 
you know, yeah, it just depends on the need of that market. If you could do that and then you can get your new customers in a very efficient, cost-efficient manner, it might work, but it might be more challenging too, just depending. Well, I guess if if you come up with some you know, money-saving app for B2C, that's that's relevant to the to what's going on with those people, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but you also got to keep in mind your cost per customer acquisition, right? I mean, if it costs a ton of money to acquire those individual consumers, you know, it, it may not necessarily pencil out, especially if you don't have the capital. So that's the big thing is, is how much does it cost to acquire your customer and how much revenue does that customer bring in once you do acquire them? Our customers, they bring in multiple subscriptions per customer. So our customer acquisition costs, you know, may not be like extremely low, but we're bringing in a significant amount of revenue per customer to justify our investment. You know, B2C, could, it could be totally different. You may you may invest a year's worth of, of, of profits from that customer to just acquire that customer. And it may not make sense for someone who is trying to get to profitability quickly. Yeah. What, one thing I noticed in 2020, 2021 is people weren't focusing too much on CAC, customer acquisition cost. They were, they were focusing on growth because VCs wanted more growth, more growth next time, 3x this year, 3x next year. Let's grow, let's grow. So they're just throwing money in, in, in the you know blank acquisition systems. How do you work on your customer acquisition costs? How, how do you improve it over time? If you will give us some of the secrets or some of the strategies. I try to optimize as much as possible. Um, I try to avoid... So in our business, a lot comes down to the sales cycle. So the amount of time it takes to close a deal. And then you know you have to invest a certain amount of money into it to, to, to get that customer, like to get their interest to begin with, to turn them into a lead. You know, I try to compress that. I try to compress the cost to actually convert them to a lead. And then once they're a lead, I try to compress the amount of time it takes them to convert from a lead to a customer. So, you know, I've worked out a number of strategies over the past few years to do that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it is my secret sauce. So I can't, like, you know, dis- disclose it too easily. That's what it comes down to is just compressing time, compressing the time that it takes to convert them to a lead and the cost to, to make them a lead. And then the amount of time it takes from them to become a, from a, a convert from a lead to an actual customer. You mentioned some really important metric, which is like customer acquisition payback time, right? It's how it's how soon you can secure the deal and get your investment back. Whether it's thirty days, seven days, maybe it's one hundred eighty days, right? A lot of times, right. founders they focus so much on customer acquisition cost, meaning dollar amount, how much I spent spent in ads, how much I spent for this for that. They don't realize that. The moment, like the shorter the payback time, the faster you can reinvest this thing. And if it's too long, you might be growing not as fast as you can, right? So for example, if you cut it in in half, it means you can reinvest it two times as fast in in your paid funnels. Exactly right. And and even companies that are funded, they they no longer really have the luxury of just dumping money in to acquire these customers and waiting a year to two years to, to see the payback. You know they're starting to get a lot of pressure from the VCs to reduce that customer acquisition cost. So yeah, it, it is super important to try to recover that cost as quickly as possible. And if you can compress anything in the sales cycle, you know that would that would definitely help. I'd love to learn what kind of resources you've used across your across your journey to learn about entrepreneurship, about SaaS, IoT, how to manage a real business, right? When I say resources, I mean books, maybe inspirational speakers, mentors, people. Uh, if you could outline maybe two to three resources that you find being the most impactful for you in the past couple of years. 
so that others could could also share and learn from them. Yeah, so uh, a lot of books. You know, good to great is a good book. You know, there's there's a few others. I I really like Shoe Dog um, by Phil Knight. Um, that's actually one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, it's not really specific to SaaS, but it is uh, about startups and the startup journey. And it's really compelling. And it also is a book that encourages you to take risks. So books, that's that's one big resource for me. Um, advisors. So I have a group of advisors that I work with uh, that I get feedback from. Um, they're experienced people and each kind of uh, is an expert in, in a specific domain. So that helps a lot as well. And I've also been a member of Roundtables. So there's a lot of startup groups and roundtables and things like that, that entrepreneurs can participate in, you know, learn from other people that have been in their shoes before and even use them as a sounding board for things that they're trying to uh, attempt. So when we're just starting, let's say startup, sometimes we don't necessarily have the whole, you know, board of advisors, but what you said is it, it might make sense to go into those startup like roundtables, almost like communities, some kind of masterminds and, and learn yeah. from those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of those and, you know, any city that has a good amount, good startup ecosystem typically has those. So yeah, I would definitely advise an entrepreneur to look into that. One thing I, I uh, really often ask founders, but for you probably the most relevant is if you were to go and travel back in time five years ago and, and give yourself like one piece of advice about entrepreneurship, about how to run your business better, meaning like what's the biggest advice you could give yourself with only just one from all the experience you've gained over the past five years? Wow, over five, five years. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, the, the past few years have been pretty wild. I mean, just, you know, from a, just societal standpoint, everything that's gone on, I, I would probably go back and say, brace yourself. <laughs> you know, there, there's going to be a lot of chaos over the next few years you know, just be prepared for all, all of that. Uh, because, you know, some of it is economic, some of it is, you know, business impacting, but also some of it is psychological. You know, a lot of things from COVID to, you know, a lot of the political turmoil, all of this has really caused a lot of struggles for a lot of people. And, and not just, you know, the entrepreneur, but their employees or their families or, you know, other people in their, in their uh, lives. I would have said, okay, be prepared for that and be prepared to just hold steady and kind of work through it because things will eventually turn out, um, you know, they'll turn out okay. So I think, yeah, if I went back five years, that's probably what I would say to myself because that's, you know, during the last five years, that's the one period of time, you know, over my 20 year experience or journey here, that's had just the most turmoil just the most turmoil. It's, it's been it's been wild. <laughs> got it. I, I also find it like if you just look back at just a couple of years, right? We got COVID right after that. Well, I'm from Ukraine, so since I just know. So war in my country, we're traveling, something else happens. So it's it's almost like the life teaches us to be comfortable to be uncomfortable in a way, right? We just we just gotta the, the speed of those events, it kind of uh, it kind of compresses. So we have much more events like this happen, right? Probably in five years more than in the past 10 years. Yeah, so we, we just need to learn to adapt fast, I think. I, th I think what, what we've seen happening is the ones who are most adaptive to, to the environment will be winning. So it's not it's not that much anymore who's the bigger. It's more about who's faster and who's, and who's, who's more adaptive. Absolutely. If SaaS insiders could take one biggest takeaway from, from this session, if they if they listen to the episode and they only remembered one most important thing from this, what do you think they should should remember? What kind of, what is the biggest advice when it comes to building a sustainable company? Because I feel like your 
your headline says, right? It's the most consistent IoT entrepreneur, the most sustainable company. If talking about sustainability, what do you think they should keep in mind like day and night when, when building their business? Yeah, I would say just always be aware of your environment, always adjust for your environment, and always set yourself up so that you can survive and, and even thrive when the environment uh, isn't as good as it is today. So I that's I guess that would be the one takeaway <laughs> that I would uh, I would hope that people would get from this. One of the last things I remembered before we'll be wrapping our conversation is you mentioned flexible expenses versus like static ones. Could you elaborate mm -hmm. a little bit more on that? You mentioned that the goal is to keep the static, the fixed expenses as low as possible and the mm -hmm. flexible, like most of them, so you can adjust them. Can, can you give an example of how I, I or any assassin sounder would do that? Yeah, business? sure. So um, so a lot of companies have have done this more on the staffing side. So, you know, some companies during the past few years, they build up these huge full-time teams. You know, that's fine when things are great, but when things tighten up, then unfortunately, you know, they'll have to, they have to lay people off, let people go. What some companies have done very uh, efficiently is they have a core team of, uh, core team, but then a number of their employees are maybe contract or they use, you know, agencies, uh, things like that. So it gives them some more flexibility because, you know, staffing obviously is your highest cost. And if things, you know, they, they're not going as well on the economic side or the business side, it's a lot easier to end a contract with a contractor or an agency than it is to lay off people. That's one example um, that is, you know, it's, it's a lot of startups have been doing it over the past few years. We just started doing that uh, over, over the past year, uh, but it does make things a lot, a lot more flexible for you. I heard um, the term is depending on how you manage your people, they can be either your biggest asset or biggest liability. So it's up to you to to make sure you you manage these relationships and balance balance the cost. So it's it, it doesn't become the liability side. So yeah. you can actually leverage them. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I think is it is important to have a core team of of, of regular full time employees. But you know, if if you need to, it's it's not critical that you scale up by hiring people. You can always contract things out to third parties. And then if you decide that it makes more sense to bring that in-house, you can bring that in-house. But when you contract stuff out to your third parties, it's just easier to uh, to make adjustments to those contracts if your resources don't, you know, you just don't have the resources to, to cover it all. What you're saying is the brain of the company can be an in-house team. Mm -hmm. Meaning that the core people, I was speaking like more like a decision makers, more like the management board, or what kind of layers do you think should be should be in a core team, regardless of the scale? Yeah, yeah, I would say the decision makers, um, definitely. But also, I mean, for some roles, if it's if if you have a specific task that it's it's constant, right, is a constant part of your, your company. So maybe it's like billing, right? You're always going to be charging people. It most likely makes more sense to have somebody in-house do it because it's a lot more cost-effective than to use a contractor or a third party. However, if you have, um, you know, maybe you have a certain technology that you use and you need a developer, but maybe that technology you're only developing, you're you're not consistently developing it, right? So maybe you're maintaining it, and then every few months you're adding new functionality to it. Well, that can be outsourced. You don't need that in-house because. Again, if if it's not totally core to your your business, then if you have to cut costs, it's easier to cut costs there than it is to 
to uh, lay off an employee. So whatever is not a constant requirement, so whatever you don't see, you'll be needing day after day for, for months to come or years to come, might make sense to make some kind of contract agreement so that you're flexible, so that you're not wasting those resources when they're like more on the downtime. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they may have work to do, but you know they're not driving the business, right? So, so those types of things you can probably just kind of put on hold and then um, you know get back to them when things pick up again. I think I think the efficiency is something a lot of us need to learn in that sense because mm-hmm. we, we always want to build like our own own in-house team. You know, when you have your employees, it feels like oh, I'm running a big company, right? But it yeah. also comes it also comes with the pressure that you have to have work for them. At least like eighty to ninety percent of them need to be billable. Otherwise, it's just it's 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 not efficient, right? And when those hard times come, like you said, like the ones who are are not efficient will there'll be some kind of a buyout they'll try to exit it or they won't be able to sustain to long term so really something to to learn yeah and and another thing too to add to that is you know some entrepreneurs get caught up in in the number of employees they have right so they get caught up in telling everyone well they have 30 40 50 employees but do you really need 30 40 50 employees you know a lot of times companies can get away with half of that amount um, especially if they have processes, you know, there's a lot of automation, a lot of tools out there that can do the work that a person can do. So so sometimes, you know, you can use that instead of having to hire an additional person to to do the work. I wouldn't get so caught up in trying to constantly build the business by adding new people and and going around and bragging to my buddies about having 30 or 40 employees. You know, I would focus more on making sure the business is profitable and then, you know, having the tools in place to ensure that it can be efficient and profitable without necessarily having to hire a ton of people to do the work. Well, I mean, having having a huge headcount is more about the ego, right? The ego thing. And the ego is not our amigo, meaning that it's we shouldn't be focusing on how, what's the number because it, it, it makes us look cool, but it, it doesn't really make the business, the business efficient and profitable. Yeah, absolutely. And it can back you in a corner where you have to go out and constantly raise that VC capital to be able to, to pay all these people. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Love, love the insight. Yukon, if, what would be the concluding thoughts, right? What would be the note you would like to conclude our conversation? What, what kind of the final takeaways the SaaS Insider seems to take from this conversation? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd say starting a SaaS business right now is probably, you know, pretty stressful. It's, it's a little more challenging than normal times, uh, but if you do it smart, you can do it. And I would say a lot of it just comes down to the way you you perceive things. You know, if you if you look at um, starting a company now as an opportunity, and you're not scared, and you don't you don't sit on the sidelines because you're worried about the economy, you know, you might actually make something of it. But again, you just make sure your business is something that would be in demand during an environment like this. And then also just don't put yourself in a situation where you have to raise VC capital to be able to survive the next to the next day. Get yourself to profitability as quickly as possible and then go out and raise capital. And then you'll actually be in a better bargaining position when, when you do that. You can Palmer, everyone. You can thank us so much for joining us today and sharing your experience. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Sassan Sanders, we'll see you in the next episodes. <laughs>